If you have a Bible, you can find the book of Job. We are going to read a number of different passages tonight. We obviously, you see on the notes, we're looking at Job chapter 4 to Job chapter 31. We're not going to read all of it. We're not going to read most of it. We're not going to read half of it. But we are going to read parts of this section tonight. Maybe you've heard these sayings before, you can't see the forest for the trees, you can't see the field for the grass, you can't see the bouquet for the rose. When somebody says something to this effect, what they're saying is you're missing the big picture. You're so caught up and worried about details that you don't see how it all fits together and you don't see the big picture. I just want to make an introductory comment as we begin tonight that I think When it comes to Bible study, a lot of people make the mistake of focusing too much on the tree and not enough on the forest. And I have people regularly talk to me and ask me uh, about how they can read the Bible and understand it and study. And uh, people are interested in deep Bible study. I understand that a lot of churches just do surfacey things, fly over the top type stuff. Uh, But people really are interested in deep, serious Bible study. And what I'm saying to you is that sometimes people, when they want to study the Bible deeply, they make the mistake of focusing in on one tree too much. And they just want to pick one verse or one phrase or one word and they want to parse it and they want to know it in the original language and they want to know how to spell it in the original language and they want to assign meaning to the shapes of the letters in the original language and they want to do all these crazy things with this word and connect all these dots all through scripture and sometimes if you want to be very deep in your Bible study you do have to understand the trees But what you really need to do is step back and see where that particular tree fits into the forest. And that's a check on Bible study. Because if you ignore the rest of the forest, you can make any one tree say whatever you want it to say. So the point is not to say, hey, I've found a verse that proves my theory or my idea or whatever. But the idea is to say, here's a tree and I know where it fits into the forest, and I understand the contribution it makes, but also understand it in light of all the other trees and all the other things happening in that forest. So when it comes to a particular book of the Bible, if you're studying or reading a particular book of the Bible, you have to understand where it fits in the Bible as a whole. If you're going to understand where something fits in the Bible as a whole, you have to understand the whole story of the Bible. Not all the individual trees have to be memorized. But the big parts, you've got to understand the idea that the Bible begins with creation and that then there was a fall and then that God began to enact a plan moving towards redemption and that plan culminated in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that the Holy Spirit is now at work in us, as we're talking about on Sunday mornings, to save us and to make us like Christ and to apply His finished work to our lives so that at the end, we might, again, be with God in a new heavens and a new earth. If you can understand that big story, then it's very helpful for taking one book of the Bible and putting it in its place. Now, I'm sharing this with you tonight because we're looking at a part of the book of Job. It's a big part of the book of Job. It's sort of the middle of the book. And I want to make sure that we understand where we're at in the storyline of the book of Job. 
Okay? The last several weeks up to this point, we spent one whole week on the introductory paragraph. And then we spent two weeks on Satan and his conversations with the Lord. And then we spent a whole week on Job and his lament, or as we said last week, maybe it was more of a complaint. And then tonight, we're going to put the accelerator down, and we're going to go for chapter after chapter after chapter. We're going to cover all this ground, and we're not close to the shore anymore. Now we're just floating out in the middle of the book. And so I just want to make sure that you understand where we're at in the, in the book of Job. So here's an outline that's been very helpful for me in just thinking through the book of Job. You can break the book into three parts. There's an introduction, and then there's a bunch of talking, speeches, and then there's a conclusion. Those are the three big parts in the book of Job. The introduction, chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. The speeches begin in chapter 1, verse 6, and they go all the way to the, uh, chapter 42. And then 42, 7 to 17 is the conclusion. Those are the three big parts of the book. Now, take the speeches. You can break those speeches down into three parts. First, Yahweh talks with Satan. We've already talked about those parts. Secondly, Job talks with his friends, and that's where we're at tonight, Job and his friends. And then at the end, Yahweh's going to talk to Job. So those are the three parts to the middle part, the speeches. Now you can take Job and his friends, and guess what? You can break it down into three parts. First is just Job all by himself. We looked at that last week, Job's complaint. The second part that we're covering tonight is Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, Job's friends. We're going to cover all that conversation tonight. Then next week, we're going to look at a man named Elihu. He gives this last speech of Job's friends. Now, guess what? This is not on your outline because I didn't have space to fit it all, and I actually had to cut all kinds of stuff. But you can take Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar where we left off down there at the bottom, and guess how many parts you can break that into? Three. And I'll just show you one more example here. If you want to add this to your flow chart, there's three rounds. There's round one, then there's round two, then there's round three. And you can jot that down if you're interested in that sort of thing. I'll show you another graph or a chart later that'll help us make sense of that. Tremper Longman says this, just sort of taking all of this in. He says, the debate has four participants. So pay attention to the numbers in this quote. Four participants. Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. Four participants. But it only has two viewpoints. Since no space can really be found between the arguments of the three friends. So there's four people in the conversation. But it sort of functions like three on one. Three are approaching things with the same ideas, the same arguments, the same perspective, and then Job is over there by himself. Uh, Zophar may be rhetorically more harsh, but his arguments are the same as those of Eliphaz and Bildad. You can be the judge of that when it comes to Zophar. So our aim tonight is just to understand this argument, to understand this debate. Before we get to the debate itself, we just need to be clear about the characters. This isn't rocket science. This is pretty basic stuff, but there's a few points of application we might make along the way. Let's talk about the characters and the setting for this big section at the middle of the book. 
In this section, we read about an extended debate between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. You wrote their names on the graph. Now I'm asking you to write them again. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. We had a new baby born into our church today. The Dennards had a baby. They went with Ty, not Eliphaz, not Bildad, not Zophar. They're still available. Look, in the, in the books and the commentaries, let me just share one thing with you. An, an example of sometimes focusing too much on the trees. Some commentators want to chase out who these guys are and where they're from. What does their name mean? Where are they from? Are they Hebrews? Are they not Hebrews? Most people think they're not Hebrews. Uh, what's their ancestry and their lineage? And they try to connect all of these dots. I don't think that's the point at all who they are or where they're from. I think the point is, why did they show up? And we talked about this last week. This is important. They did not show up to gripe at Job. They showed up back in chapter 2 to show comfort and sympathy to their friend. And they saw him when they were a long ways off and they wept and they tore their clothes, and they put dust on their head, and they sat down with Job in his misery, and for seven days they just sat with their friend, and they didn't say anything. And then, just keep this in mind as we're thinking about this debate, Job was the one who started the conversation, but he really wasn't a conversation. He really wasn't talking to them, and he really wasn't even talking to the Lord. He was just talking. And the Bible in the section heading in chapter 3 says Job laments his birth. But I told you last week, I think what he's doing is complaining. I don't think he's lamenting. We ought to learn how to lament. I don't think that's what Job does in chapter 3. I think it's more of just a complaint. So just be mindful of why these friends showed up to show comfort and sympathy. Job pops off with a not great complaint. And then they respond. And we'll judge the merits of their response tonight. So, those are the friends. Also, there is a young man named Elihu, or Elihu, however you want to say it. He's the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, and he was silently listening to this debate. So, spoiler alert, these four guys aren't the only ones there. There's at least one more person there. His name's Elihu. And he's listening, and he's taking all of this in. I'm going to share with you next week, he's a really mysterious figure. There are actually all sorts of different theories about Elihu and who he is or who he's not and where he was or where he wasn't or what he said or what he didn't. It's a fascinating conversation. This is what I just want to say to you in this room. Take this however you want to take it. When we meet Eliphaz next week, it describes him as a young man. When old voices are talking, young ears are listening. There's older people talking here about things, and there's a younger person listening. That's almost always true in your life. Whether you think you're old or oldish or older or whatever, when you're talking, there's almost always younger ears listening. You know that's true because you have ridden up and down 42nd Street with other people like your kids in the car. And you've heard them say things and you've thought, where did they learn that? And immediately you've thought, well, they learned it from me. They're listening. 
when you go home, sit around the dinner table, or you go out to eat Sunday after church, and you talk about things, people are listening. When you're in the hallway at church on a Sunday, talking with someone else, someone's listening. There's always people listening. This young man is listening. He's taking it all in. And we'll talk about his contribution to the conversation next week. One more character. Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth, is silently listening to this debate. So we met Yahweh back in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And he was talking with Satan. It's one of the strangest things you'll ever read in the Bible. You open this book, the book of Job. It's an old book. It's an ancient book. It's very foreign to our lives. And right out of the gate, there's the Lord talking to the devil. And you think, I didn't think it worked that way. But apparently it works that way. They're having a conversation. They're with the sons of God and this divine council, and they're talking about all sorts of odd things. And it's the Lord who's initiating the conversation. And then it's Satan who's accusing Job, and it's Satan who's accusing the Lord. Uh, So we met Yahweh there. When you get to Job's suffering, it's obvious that Job feels like Yahweh is absent or disinterested in what's happening in his life. You've read the beginning of the book. Is he absent or disinterested? Quite the opposite, actually. But Job feels like God is absent and disinterested. In your life, there will be times when you feel like God is absent from you or disinterested in what's happening in your life. And your feelings are not always an accurate measure of reality. All through this debate, okay? There's a lot of debate in this book. Job and his friends and back and forth and they're talking. And sometimes they're talking about God. In fact, a lot of the time they're talking about God. But God doesn't say anything. All through this debate, he remains silent. There will be times in your life when you think he's silent, he's not listening, he's not there, he's not paying attention. He's there, he's listening, he sees, he hears, he knows. When the people of Israel were languishing away in slavery in Egypt, they felt like the Lord was not with them. And early in the book of Exodus, it says, God heard him, and he saw, and he knew exactly what was happening, and he had a plan, but for a long time, they just felt like centuries, they felt like he's not with us, he's not paying attention, he's not doing anything, he's forgotten us, he's abandoned us. Their feelings were not the right, accurate measure of the situation, neither are mine, neither are yours. So we'll come back to that idea here in a minute. Our staff is reading a book, this book's not about the book of Job. It's a book by J.I. Packer. It's called Knowing God. If you like to read, this is a book you should read. It's a wonderful book talking about knowing God. Not just knowing about God, but actually knowing Him. Not just knowing Him however you want to imagine Him, but knowing Him as He's revealed Himself in the Scriptures. Packer says this, Living becomes an awesome business when you realize that you spend every moment of your life in the sight and company of an omniscient, omnipresent creator. 
there's never been one millisecond of your life when you are outside of God's seeing or God's knowing or God's hearing or God's being. When you begin to think about that and think about it regularly, that does change the way you think about life. It changes the way you think about homework. It changes the way you think about flat tires. It changes the way you think about family gatherings. It changes the way you think about driving down 42nd Street. So that's the characters. That's the setup. Let me explain to you what I'm going to try to do in this next section, okay? I am not taking you fishing right now. I'm not going to go catch the fish for you. But I'm going to bait your hook. And I'm going to point you over there and say, there's the fishing hole. It's over there. You're ready to go. You're baited up. That's where the fish are. And you can go. This section is too big to make sense of all of it. And trust me, I thought about five or six different ways that we could slow roll through it. But there's so much repetition. By the third week, you'd be rolling your eyes at me. And you'd be saying, we've heard this sermon already. And I'd be saying, I know, I preached it last week because it's the same stuff over and over and over again. So we're just going to look at it as one big unit and then you can wade through it and you can try to make sense of it on your own. So let's talk about this debate. This debate had three rounds. Things fell apart in the final round. Kind of like a presidential debate these days. We're going to have a few rounds and by the time it's over, the Lights are going to be going off, and the moderator's going to be muting mics, and nobody's going to have any control. The whole thing's going to just sort of come off the rails. That's basically what happened here. Three rounds, things fell apart in the final round. I didn't have space to put this on your notes, but this might be helpful for you just sort of visualizing this. In round one, Eliphaz goes first, and then Job responds. And then Bildad has something to say, and Job responds. And then Zophar has something to say, and Job responds. Everybody gets a crack at Job, and Job gets to respond, and that's round one. Then you come to round two, and it's the same order. Eliphaz, then Bildad, then Zophar. And then you come to round three, and round three is a little bit different. It starts off pretty much the same with Eliphaz and Job in 22 to 24, but you look at the the debate between Bildad and Job. Bildad gets like five words in, in this third round, and then Job goes for a long time. Job has just had enough. The debate is over. Job just talks, and he talks, and he talks, and he talks at the end, and then Zophar is just, he's gone. He's not there. He doesn't get a third crack at him. The conversation is over. So I think this is a helpful comment from Barry Webb. He says, The circular pattern of the dialogue between Job and his friends reflects the fact that the participants are going round in circles getting nowhere. Okay? There's not any progress in these three rounds. It's not like round one, foreign policy. Round two, economic policy. Round three, moral issues. We're just going round and round and round, the same ideas, the same material, the same argument, over and over and over. We're moving in a circle. The pattern breaks down in the final cycle, and that reflects the fact that the friends are running out of things to say. And it also reflects the fact that Job's heard enough. They don't have anything new to say. You've gone through it for two and two-thirds rounds, 
And Job goes on this long rant at the end, and that's the end of the conversation. This is a helpful comment from my perspective, because this is what Barry Webb is telling me. You do need to work through the material and read the arguments. But just the way that it is structured is telling you something about the point the author's trying to make. We're going to move in these rounds. We're not going to progress. We're just going to go round in circles. This is going nowhere, and it's going nowhere fast. And then, if you're like me and you're type A, it really bothers you that Zophar doesn't get to go again. And you say, hey, everyone else got three. Zophar got two. This doesn't seem right. I want to hear what he has to say. But it's left off to make you uneasy. Okay, maybe that doesn't bother you. We're one of those wild free spirits. And you say, who cares about this structure? We don't care about Zophar. But the structure of it is important. And the lack of structure at the end is saying to you, this thing is completely deteriorated. And it's all a mess. One of the things that's challenging in this section is that you are reading conversation. There is not any plot development in this section. It's just he said this, and 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 and that's round one. And then you do it again, and then you do two-thirds of that again with a long Job said this at the end. It's really hard. So this is where I'm telling you, back up, before you try to make sense of this conversation, because it's tricky, you have to remember the story of the book of Job. What's the story? In the beginning, there's a man named Job. He's upright. He's blameless. He fears God. Does that mean he's absolutely spotless, sinless, perfect? No, we've established that. But it does mean he's a good, godly guy, and he fears God, and he hasn't done anything that's about to cause all this stuff that's about to happen. He hasn't failed to do something that's going to cause all this stuff about to happen. There's Job. And then Satan comes along, and him and God have this conversation. And God gives permission to Satan to do some pretty horrible things to Job. And then his friends show up, and they sit with him, and then he complains, and then they have this big debate. There's also a little bit more story at the end that we're going to talk about that you have to factor in if you're going to understand this conversation. But what you have to understand before you wade into this debate is that Job has not done a horrible, secret, wicked, dirty thing that has brought all of this bad stuff into his life. And it's not like God set something really good in front of Job for him to do, and he refused to do it, and so now he's getting punished for all of that. The backstory, the little bit of plot that's in this book, tells you it really doesn't have anything to do with any of that. God has actually spoken very highly of Job. He's not punishing Job. And you have to remember that as you wade into this debate. The friends keep saying, God's punishing you. And Job keeps saying, I don't think he is. And as the argument gets more and more heated, the only way that Job can square all this, because he doesn't have all the information, the only way that he can square it is to say, God's not doing a very very good job running the universe in my life. Now, does he say that exactly? Not word for word, but pretty much. 
I'm not getting a fair shake here. And God's against me. Is God against Job? In the beginning, he's clearly for him. He loves him. He brags on him. He puts him up on this pedestal and says, look at this guy. He loves me. He fears me. Job can't square it. He begins to question. He begins to criticize. So here's a few more things you need to understand as you're going to wade through this. I want you to remember that the Bible, not just in the book of Job, but the Bible, it accurately reports many false statements. Does that sound like lawyer talk? The Bible accurately reports many false statements. So I gave you a few examples, and you can search these up and see if, if I'm on to something here. There's a statement in the book of Genesis chapter 3. A serpent slithers up to Adam and Eve, and after a little bit of conversation, the serpent says, you will not surely die. What did God say? You will die. So this is a false statement. It's a lie. And it's accurately reported or recorded in the scriptures that this is what Satan said. Another example, Genesis 37. You remember the, the brothers, the older brothers, the sons of Jacob, they saw their brother Joseph coming. Remember? Here comes that dreamer. Let's be done with him. Let's just kill him. Let's just end it. We're sick of him. We hate him. And Reuben, older brother Reuben, convinces all the rest of them, we probably shouldn't kill him. That would be really bad. It wouldn't be as bad as if we just threw him in a pit and left him. Let's just do that. And he, somehow he convinces them to do that. Not to kill him, just throw him in the pit and leave him. Do you know why Reuben said that? Is it because Reuben had a problem with murder? It's because Reuben wanted to be the favorite. And Reuben's plan after the brothers left was to go back and get Joseph out of the pit, take him home and say, look what the rest of the brothers did to Joseph and I am here to save him. You may not ever love me as much as Joseph, but at least I could be number two. That's why when Reuben comes back and they have sold him to the slave traders, he says, what have you done? Why would you do that? My plan is ruined. So he deceives his brothers. And it's all recorded there in Genesis 37. How about Exodus chapter 16? This is after Moses leads the people out. And they get out into the wilderness. They've been out there for about two and a half minutes. And they immediately say, Moses, you have brought us out here into this wilderness so that we will die of thirst and die of hunger. Is that why Moses brought them out into the wilderness? No. But it's accurately reported that that's what they said. It was wrong, it was false, it was inaccurate, but they said it and the Bible records it. Here's my favorite one in all the Bible, my favorite lie in the Bible. Exodus 32. Moses comes down from the mountain and the people are going nuts. They're having a rave, crazy party. And Moses says, Aaron, I left you in charge. What happened? Where did this golden statue come from? And Aaron says, Moses, it was the craziest thing. We took all the gold, we threw it in the fire, and the cow just jumped out. 
There it is. You should have been here. It was amazing. Too bad we didn't have the cameras going. Nobody had the phone out. You missed it, Moses. Even though earlier in the chapter it says Aaron took all the gold and he melted it down and he fashioned the statue with an engraving tool. He lied. It was a false statement. It was accurately recorded because that's what he said. This is why I'm laying all this out. When you read this debate, it's accurate in recording what the friends in Job said to each other. But sometimes they say things that aren't right. Okay? One of the most important doctrines for you to understand is the doctrine of inerrancy. The inerrancy of Scripture. Because we believe that the Holy Spirit of God breathed out the Scriptures... He carried men along as they wrote the scriptures. No word of scripture or prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. So that what we have in the scripture is God's breathed out, his spirited out word. Because we believe in the inspiration of scripture, we also believe in the inerrancy of scripture. Let me just tell you, not every church in Odessa believes in the inerrancy of scripture. They will all look you in the face and say, we believe the Bible's the Word of God. But if you really dig down deep, they do not all believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. That is, Scripture is completely and entirely without error. And what I'm saying to you is that there are many statements in the Bible that are false statements. And they are accurately recorded. That's what Satan said. That's what Reuben said. That's what the Israelites said. That's what Aaron said said. They're wrong, they're lies, they're deceitful, but they're accurate and they're true and without error in the sense that the Bible's recording what these people said. You have to read this debate with that in mind. This is the most important thing, and we're going to spend some time on this. I know you got a lot of blanks left, and we'll get to all of them, and I'll get you in time to get your kids because I'm scared of Miss Jennifer. So we're going to get out of here on time, and you're going to get down the hall, but we're going to spend a minute here, so don't panic. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, everything they said, it was built on what most Bible scholars call retribution theology. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Bible scholars use a number of different terms here to explain what, what they believed, what is the foundation of the three friends in their argument. But this is the most common term, retribution theology. So I just want you to see it first in the text. And then I'll explain it to you, and we'll make sure we're all on the same page. So look at Job chapter 5, verse 17. We're going to look from round 1, just from round 1. Okay, this is Eliphaz. First speaker, first round, Eliphaz. Chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. He assumes that God is reproving and disciplining Job. You've read the beginning of the book. Is this about Job being disciplined? No, but he assumes that's what it's about. It has to be about that. Okay. Look at the next example, chapter 8, verse 4. This is Bildad, round one, second speaker.
Chapter 8, verse 4. Bildad, if your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. You imagine how hurtful that was for Job to hear that? Essentially, Bildad said, Job, maybe this isn't about your sin. Maybe it's about your kid's sin. And maybe God brought all of this disaster on your kids and your family and your house and all of it because your kids were horrible people. You've read the opening chapters. Did it have anything to do with the kids? Literally nothing. What wasn't even really brought up in the discussion between Yahweh and Satan other than that God had blessed him with a great family. So Bildad assumes that maybe if you didn't sin, maybe it was your kids. How about Zophar? Chapter 11, verse 14. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Zophar looks at Job and he says, look, the real problem here is you have some iniquity you're hiding. And there's some kind of injustice that you've done. That's why all this stuff is happening to you. And if you would put that stuff away, things would probably get a lot better for you. Now, you've read the beginning. In the author's description of Job, did it say anything about secret iniquity or gross injustice? doesn't have anything to do with what happened to Job in the conversations between Yahweh and Satan. But Zophar assumes you've got to be guilty of some iniquity or some injustice. So here's how you square retribution theology. Probably the easiest way that I can describe retribution theology, Job's friends, to you, is to think about not the Hindu idea, but the American idea of karma. Okay, Hindus believe in karma, and it really has nothing to do with what Americans talk about when we say karma. It's completely different. If a Hindu heard you talking about karma, he would say, you don't know what you're talking about. You're an ignorant American. But the American idea of karma gets pretty close to what Job's friends believed into this foundational idea of retribution theology. Okay, Here it is. If you do something bad, if you sin, something bad will happen in your life. And there will be a one-to-one connection. If you do a bad thing, or if you don't do a good thing that you're supposed to do. If you sin, a sin of omission or a sin of commission, then something bad is going to happen in your life. Now, the flip of this is also true in retribution theology. If you will just be good you'll be nice, if you'll be a good person, good things will happen in your life. Everything will just go the way that it's supposed to go. If you do bad things, bad things are going to happen. If you do good things, good things are going to happen. And if good things are happening, it means you've done good things. And if bad things are happening, it means you've done bad things. In their minds, it's pretty simple. So they show up. They see Job from far off. They say, is that him? It doesn't look like him. That's him. That's our friend. They see all of this disaster that's fallen into Job's life. And they say, this is terrible. This is horrific suffering. They don't make light of his suffering ever. They know the horror of it. And so they say, Job, this is bad. You must have done something this bad to cause it. And Job keeps saying, you know, I don't think so. 
I really don't think so. But you know what Job doesn't ever do? He doesn't ever correct their underlying theology. He just keeps saying, no, I don't think I have. I don't think I have. But it is bad right now. So what Job ends up saying is, I think God has got the wires crossed here. I don't think he's running things the way that he's supposed to be running them. And if God would just come down here and talk with me face to face, we could sort this whole thing out real quick. He accuses God of injustice and running the universe in a bad way. So David Allen explains it like this. All three friends assume the retribution principle is always true. Sin results in punishment, retribution. And therefore, Job must be suffering due to his own sin, or at least the sins of his children. The fate of the wicked can be explained as a cause, effect, continuum between our actions and God's response. It's just a mechanical view of the universe. You put this in, you get this out. You put in bad, you're going to get bad out. You put in good, you'll get some good out. And that's how it works. If you're getting bad, it's because you put bad in. If you're getting good, it's because you put good in. Now, where in the world did they get this idea from? And do you think it's still around today? Let me just give you a few thoughts. This is not on your notes. We'll put them on the screen. Retribution theology can be established by turning proverbs into promises. Real quick. You take a proverb, you turn it into a promise, you can lay the weight of retribution theology right on top of somebody. Okay, I'll just give you a few examples. Proverbs chapter 3. One of the things, remember Proverbs chapter 3, trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge Him and He'll make your path straight, all that stuff. If you keep reading down about verse 9 or 10, the author of Proverbs says, if you will honor the Lord with the first fruits of your wealth, your barns will always be overflowing. So take that proverb and turn it into a promise. You tithe, you'll be rich. If you're not rich, because you're not tithing enough. That's retribution theology. You turn a proverb, which is saying, this is generally how it works, into a promise. I'll give you another example of, of how you might do this. Proverbs chapter 6 is a chapter about adultery. Towards the end of that chapter, it warns a person who's committing adultery that if you run off with somebody else's spouse, that somebody else might come after you. It's just a warning. You're going to make somebody mad. So you need to be aware. It's just practical warning. This is generally true. You run off with somebody's spouse, they're going to get upset with you. Now, does that mean every time a, a spouse that's been cheated on is going to hunt somebody else down and attack them? No. Does it happen sometimes? Just proverbial wisdom. You need to be aware of this. How about a big one? Proverbs chapter 22. It talks about raising children in the way that they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. Take that proverb, turn it into a promise, and say to somebody, if your kids aren't going the way that they ought to go, it's probably because you messed up. That's retribution theology. Good in, good out. Bad in, bad out. Retribution theology was a problem in Old Testament times as evidenced by the struggle of godly people like Asaph. And I'm going to let you chase this out in Psalm 73. 
Asaph is one of my heroes in the Bible. Just trace out what the Bible says about this man. He lived an amazing life, godly life. Wrote my favorite chapter in the Bible, Psalm 73. And at the beginning of it, his whole struggle is rooted because even though he knows better, somewhere deep down in his bones, he believes retribution theology. And he looks at wicked people, and they seem to live a great life. And he says, God, why are these wicked people getting away with all this wickedness? It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right. And it eats at him, and it gnaws at him, and it's like a rot deep in his soul. Why did it bother him so much? Why does it bother us so much when a wicked person gets away with it and when they prosper? Because somewhere deep in our soul, we think they're putting bad in. God should give them bad back immediately on my timetable. Retribution theology was still a problem in New Testament times as evidenced by a question from Jesus' apostles. John 9. Do you remember this question? There's a man who's lame. He's blind, a blind man. And they look at him and they say, Jesus, who sinned that this man would be born blind like this? Was it him or was it his parents? It's retribution theology. Somebody had to put bad in for this bad outcome to come out here. And what does Jesus say? He says, you guys, what if it happened so that God's glory could be displayed in his life? What if your whole underlying assumption is wrong? Retribution theology is alive and well today. It can be seen in the prosperity gospel and in the prosperity light gospel. Prosperity gospel says if you have enough faith and you give enough money, you'll be healthy, wealthy, happy forever. It's a lie as old as the book of Job. What is the prosperity light gospel? Okay, A lot of us would look at the prosperity gospel and we say, oh, we don't believe in that. That's crazy. Nobody, come on, knock it off. That's ridiculous. The prosperity light gospel doesn't promise you Bentleys and Jaguars and mansions and millions of dollars. It just says life will be okay and you'll be comfortable. And horrible things won't happen. God will just take care of you, and it'll all just be fine. You won't have to worry about all of these horrible things happening. Can I just tell you, I wish we could talk about this some more. Church-going people really have something deep in their soul that believes this. And I'll just give you one example of how I hear it from church-going people regularly. They look at a church that is growing numerically and you know what they say to people like me they must be doing something right good outcome at least by our definition more people must mean you're putting something good in and then they look at churches that are struggling numerically or financially which there are many And they say, they must be doing something wrong. They clearly don't know what they're doing. Because if you knew what you were doing, it wouldn't be going that way. Okay? You understand, when we talk about our church or any other church like that, we are Job's friends. Okay? When you look at a manual, I'll give you an example, and you say, 
feels a little bit fuller in here than it did last year. It is a little bit fuller than last year. Not a lot, but a little bit. Does that automatically mean we've done something right? There's not a one-for-one one there. We, we don't believe what Job's friends believe. That's bad theology. We don't believe it in the most crass health and wealth form, and we don't believe it in a church growth numerical form, and we don't believe it in a prosperity light form. So we're going to run away from all this stuff, and we're going to try to make sense of what these friends are saying and how we sort it out. Let me give you one key to understanding what the friends say. How many of you like to read novels? Okay. How many of you go to the last page of the book and read it before you get all the way through? I have a daughter that does that. She does it all the time. Starts in the back. I'm going to see how it ends. Now I'm going to enjoy the ride all the way through. Uh, I've done this once in my life. When I was in high school, I got uh, into a series of books by Stephen King. Okay? For a long time, I didn't like to read. I got interested in reading from Stephen King. Do with that whatever you want to do with it. And I'm reading this book. It's by Stephen King. It's called The Gunslinger. It's the first book in the Dark Tower series. They made a movie about this kind of stuff a while back. I didn't even watch it. But I read the first book. I thought it was the best book I've ever read. Amazing. I'm hooked. I'm in. Book two, that's kind of weird. Book three, I don't know what's going on. Book four, this is ridiculous. And he kept writing books, and I quit reading them. But when the last book came out, I went to Barnes & Noble, I pulled it off the shelf, opened to the very last chapter, <laughs> and said, I want to see how this thing ends. I'm tired of all the stuff in the middle. I just want to know the ending. Did he get there and what happened and who's the good guy and who's the bad guy and sort it all out for me. You can do that with the book of Job. You can jump to the end and you can make sense of who was right and who was wrong. You ready for the spoiler alert? They're all wrong. Mostly. Not entirely. Here's two thoughts. Job's friends were right to emphasize God's wisdom and his sovereignty and his justice. So they say a lot of things to Job about, hey, Job, Job, don't forget that God is powerful and don't forget that God is just and don't forget that God is wise and he knows more than you, Job. And those are good things that they say. But they don't know the cosmic backstory and they're wrong to assume that God was punishing Job for some specific sin. And that runs through their argument all the way. God's punishing you. God's punishing you. God's punishing you. He wasn't. Likewise, Job was right to defend his innocence before the Lord. Not his sinlessness, but Job steps back and he looks at his life and he says, I don't think I have any big thing. I don't think I've been, you know, guilty of the Enron scandal or the embezzlement stuff. I, I don't think I've been secretly killing people or I, I don't think I've got anything. He's right. However, he didn't know the cosmic backstory and he was wrong to question and criticize God's justice. You can feel for Job because his friends start accusing him of things that he hasn't done. And I don't know if you've ever been accused of things that you haven't done, but it's hard to take it. And it's hard not to try to defend yourself. And it's hard not to bow up and maybe say foolish things in the end. So 
What do we take away from this section? Uh, Let me just give you a few thoughts here. It's always good to start with God, not us. What do we learn about God? The Lord sees all, hears all, knows all, even when He seems to be absent or indifferent. He's not absent, and He's not indifferent. He doesn't insert Himself into this conversation yet. And all the suffering and all the debate, it seemed like He was just out for lunch. He's not out for lunch. He wasn't out for lunch in Job's life. He's not out for lunch in your life. He sees all. He hears all. He knows all. Okay? told you about Asaph earlier. Asaph's wrestling with all sorts of stuff. Everything falls into place for Asaph when he goes to the sanctuary and he reminds himself about who God is. I don't know exactly what Asaph read and reminded himself, but I think it was along the lines of Psalm 139. I can't get away from you. You're everywhere I go. I've never lived a moment, a nanosecond outside of God's presence. You see everything about me. You know the words on my mouth before I speak them. All the days of my life are written in your book. You formed me. You knit me together in my mother's womb. He knows and he sees and he hears. Number two, when we forget what we uh, forget that we do not see all, hear all, or know all, we can easily become argumentative, critical, angry, and entitled. Job's friends were all of those things to Job. Argumentative, critical, angry, and a bit entitled. Here's what's worse. Job was all of those things toward God in this section. If you want to trace these out in your Bible, you can follow along. I'll go through them pretty quickly. Job chapter 7, verse 11. Job says, I will not restrain my mouth and I will speak in the anguish of my spirit and I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God whatever I want to say to him. Chapter 7, verse 21, why do you not pardon my transgression? He assumes that he's entitled to forgiveness. He's putting God on the spot. Chapter 10, verse 18, why did you bring me out from the womb? You messed that one up, God. You made a mistake on that day. Chapter 13, verse 3. I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. Job lived to regret saying that. I want to argue with God. Chapter 16, verse 9. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. It's Job speaking. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. God hates me. Chapter 27. He says God has taken away his rights. Chapter 30. He says God has been cruel to him and God has persecuted him. 
You remember the Snickers commercials about maybe you just need a Snickers? A couple years ago, Mark Dawson and I were on a mission trip in Toronto with a group of women, and we took this photo. (laughs) And Crystal says irritable, and Miss Terry in the back says confused, and Miss Jennifer is irritable, and Anne Marie, Jennifer's daughter, is dramatic, and my daughter in the middle is whiny. And guess what? They were all of those things at this point in the trip. And Mark and I went into a Walmart and said, y'all need to get a Snickers. Because y'all are about to wear us out. When you forget that you don't know it all, or see it all, or hear it all, that God does and you don't, real quick, you become argumentative, critical, angry, and entitled. I give you these two quickly. It's possible to be right about an issue while also being wrong in application. I think the best, most truest verse in the book is Job 11, verse 6. God exacts less of you than your guilt deserves. Zophar said that to Job. Whatever's happening to you, it's less than you deserve. That's like the opposite of the Dave Ramsey quip. How are you doing better than I deserve? Why? It was because God has exacted from me less than I deserve. That's a thousand percent true. Zophar is exactly right in saying that. And then he turns around and he just rhetorically punches Job in the mouth and says, you must be a dirty, guilty sinner. He's right and he's wrong. It's possible to be right about an issue while also being a jerk. That's the high-level theology you come for on Wednesday nights, right? You can be right about a thing and be a total jerk. And look, as this, as this debate goes on, they start calling each other windbags and know-it-alls and terrible fools and all kinds of stuff. When, El, uh, when Elihu speaks, he doesn't describe them as friends. He describes them as men doesn't use the word friends. This thing got heated. Very quick, Barry Webb, it's possible for a servant of God to be right and wrong at the same time, right in the basic stand they take on an issue, wrong in the way they go about maintaining it. Tremper Longman, Job and the three friends are not simply laying out position papers, they're attacking each other. And in the process of interaction, they lob insults at each other to assert their own wisdom and undermine their opponent's wisdom. One last truth, gospel truth. As believers, we don't believe in the retribution theology of Job's friends. What we believe in as Christians is the justice of God and the grace of God. We do not believe that in this life it's automatic, good in, good out, bad in, good out. We're not prosperity preachers, we're not prosperity light preachers. That's not what we believe. We believe that it is appointed to man to die once and then face judgment. And we believe that the God of the Bible on the day of judgment will be just with everyone. No one will receive injustice in the day of judgment. We also believe that God is gracious to His people. And he's kind to his people and he's merciful and he doesn't give them everything that they deserve. Not because they're good, 
but because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You can read what God says about himself in Exodus 34 and how Paul ties it up in Romans 3. Father, tonight we stop and we thank you for your word. God, forgive us when we think that we can somehow control you with our goodness or our badness. Forgive us when we criticize you and question you in the way that you run the universe. Lord, remind us that we do not know all, see all, hear all, but you do. Father, we pray that our hope would not be in our ability to obey and earn anything from you, but our hope would be built on your kindness in sending Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners. We're thankful for the good news of the gospel. Lord, and it is only because of the good news of the gospel that it can be well with our soul. So, Lord, be honored as we sing on our way out. We do it for your glory and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen.